The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Serving spiritual seekers around the world. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome, everybody, to the Main Street Vegan Show. I want to jump right in, right now, with both feet, because I have two fabulous guests in the appetizer portion of the program. want to let you know that after the first break, we'll be bringing on Dr. Richard Openlander, who is the author of Comfortably Unaware. We're going to talk about climate change and what we can do about all that kind of stuff. But let's start by talking about food really wonderful food that is just wonderful in a whole variety of of levels. And to do that, I'm going to be speaking with Joy Pearson and Bart Potenza. They are a couple in life and in business, and they own the Candle Restaurants in New York City. I know, I know, don't hate me because one of them is only two subway stops away. They really are the most glorious restaurants. Candle Cafe, Candle 79, Candle Cafe West. In fact, my daughter Adair, whom you know, who's starting Urban Utopia Wildlife uh, Rehabilitation. They're going to be having their winter dinner at Candle Cafe West on December 15th. So do check out urbanutopiawildlife.org and get the info on that. But what we're celebrating right now this minute is a brand new book written by Joy and two of the marvelous chefs from the Candle Restaurants, Angel Ramos and Jorge Pineda. And that is Vegan Holiday Cooking from Candle Cafe, celebratory menus and recipes from New York's premier plant-based restaurants. Welcome, Joy and Bart. Thank, Thank you, Victoria. You. 
What a beautiful introduction. Well, you are beautiful people and you deserve nothing less. So I know all about you. In fact, I knew about you before I even moved to New York way back in, in 2000. Your reputation preceded you. But <laughs> for people who, who maybe don't know the candle story, before we get into the book, how did the restaurants come about? We have a fun story. The original candle started over 30 years ago. It was called Healthy Candle, and that was in 1984. Joy came on board as a friend and customer. We have a joke. I made her a sandwich, and her life was never the same after that. But she came on board as my nutritionist, and this little place was no more than 500 square feet. Time went by. We decided we had to grow to another restaurant. We said, how are we going to get the money? So we committed to opening another restaurant, and in 1993, I played a lottery ticket that combined Joy's birthday and mine, and we won $53,000 in the New York lottery. There were six winners that night on the same ticket. Otherwise, we would have won a lot more. But it was enough of what we call the seed money. And uh, that's, that was the opening financially and every other way that started the first Candle Cafe in 1994. And here we wow. are, three cookbooks later, thanks to Joy, into our third cookbook. Thanks well, to Bart, I, we started on Friday the 13th. <laughs> well, oh, you know, I always say there is magic when you commit to this way of life. Most people don't get the win the lottery magic, but, you know, at every level, it's all good. So now Providence provides when you commit to something like this, for sure. We had lots of evidence of that. Well, that's for sure, and, and your restaurants attract every kind of celebrity, every kind of non-celebrity. The food is unbelievable, and you share that with just regular people at home in this third cookbook, Vegan Holiday Cooking. Now, I know we have what people think of as the holiday season coming up, but you don't just stop with the regular kind of December-January holidays. I mean, you, you've got... Cinco de Mayo and the 4th of July and, and the Super Bowl. I mean, <laughs> this is very cool. So what we have coming up right now is Thanksgiving, and I think that's a little bit tense for some vegans going to their mom's house. What do you have for Thanksgiving? We have, actually, in the book, we have a porcini-crusted seitan with a glazed cipollini onions and a mushroom gravy. We also have a pumpkin seed-crusted tempeh with a roasted ginger maple sweet potatoes and a cranberry orange relish. And then also with that, we have the wild rice and cornbread stuffing. And, of course, you can't leave out the Brussels sprouts. We have a Brussels sprout salad with apples and cranberries and a maple cayenne dressing. And we also have some of the all-time favorites, like the roasted butternut squash soup with an almond cream and a spiced pumpkin seeds to jazz it up. Oh, yum, yum. And you could take that to the family dinner, and you would just be the most popular vegan or non-vegan there. Exactly. And it is about sharing this beautiful food with family. And it's also, Victoria, one of the reasons we wrote the book is to bring families into the kitchen and at the table. Because it's so much fun to make these things with your family. Like I make with my niece the pumpkin cheesecake. And it's really, it's like three simple steps. It's blend, bake, and decorate. So it's so much fun. And making your own ice creams this holiday is also fun. And you can do a lot of this ahead of time so it's stress-free. That's one of the most important things about this holiday. 
Well, it is. I'm a great fan of the pumpkin cheesecake and, in fact, shared that in my newsletter this week. So anybody who doesn't get that, just go to MainStreetVegan.net and it'll say subscribe to the Main oh, Street good. Minute. And I always like to share a recipe when somebody has has a cookbook. And I looked through and, like, there's so many that are so good. But, you know, how can you not share pumpkin cheesecake? <laughs> Either in a newsletter or at a Thanksgiving dinner. Now, I'll tell you the first recipe that I tried from this book, guys. It's the holiday flip, and that's in the Christmas section. And it just sounded so good because it had... It's a, it's a drink and you can warm it up and it has soy creamer in it and it has all kinds of spices. Now, it also has quite a bit of bourbon and I generally don't drink. <laughs> so <laughs> I probably should have had a cup instead of a mug. But I've got to tell you, before I got very, very relaxed, it was probably one of the yummiest things that's ever come out of my kitchen. All right. I love that, Victoria, and I told that story to other people, too, because I love that there's there's drinks in this book, and there are also that you can use Christmas during Thanksgiving, or you can use the recipes in different times of the year. Well, we're going to have you back. We were talking about Passover and Easter and some other times of the year that we'll have you back to share some other recipes. Our time together is so brief, but just please, in the time that we have... Give a little word to somebody out there who would love to open a vegan restaurant. My, we get asked that fairly often. And what I say a lot lately, what we do, it's not about bragging. People want it and love it. But I, I find that the best way to come on board, as I did in my past, and I think Joy is too, to find a mentor, work for someone else, of course, get the, get the ground roots part of the business, which is very practical and very challenging, especially in the New York area. We, we love our food and we've anchored it, but the running of the business is, uh, is, it takes another expertise altogether. It takes a village, and this is yep. a beautiful vegan village on Vegan Main Street. So well, bottom line I, I, is, uh, guess exposed to wherever you can, with two schools who are working somewhere, etc. Yeah, and we are seasonal. That's another reason when we back Victoria. <laughs> we, do, yeah. we do the four seasons besides vegan. <laughs> and supporting the local farmers, which we do, too. Right. And, and you're organic as well. You bet. Oh, for sure. And, and that makes a big difference because lots of vegan restaurants aren't. And I understand everybody has their reasons for doing what they do. But it's wonderful to go to one of the candles and know that you're not just having this gourmet feast, but there's nothing in there that your body could rail against. Right. And we actually had the organic farmer to our book launch party, and they had picked within 24 hours of bringing us our our um, products that day. So that's really exciting because the nutrient density and the, they're picking and it's all organic and it's a beautiful family farm, Mountaindale Farm. Ah, well, and you're, you're making that, that leap too between the family farmers and, and the vegan community because I think sometimes that whole farm to table movement is a little bit alien from our movement. And so you're very good at building bridges. Exactly. And we really do believe food fresh from farm to table is how we present it to you and with pride because really those farmers do such a great job at growing such beautiful produce. As Bart says, the dew is dripping off the produce that comes in our door. <laughs> I very love it. to the chefs. So, yeah, very, very inspiring. I love it. And tasty, I, and tasty of course. Well, well so I, tasty. 
I can't believe our time is up, but I just want to tell you something fun. I went to Candle Cafe West, I don't know, a while ago with a reader of mine from Iceland. For some reason, my books do really well in Iceland. Anyway, (laughs) she came back from downstairs and, and said to me, you know, as people who have English as a second language sometimes use a different inflection than some of us would, and she said, I run into Ben Stiller in bathroom. And it was like, anything can happen at Candle Cafe. Oh, my word. (laughs) So thank you for the restaurants. Anybody who's coming to New York, just put that on your calendar. Just look at the map and see which part of town you're going to be in and which restaurant you want to go to. Or, oh, heck, go to all three of them. And pick up your very own copy of Vegan Holiday Cooking from Candle Cafe. These are celebratory menus and recipes from New York's premier plant-based restaurants. All the best to you, Joy and Bart. See you soon. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you, Victoria. Bye. And everybody else, stay with us for Dr. Richard Oppenlander, Comfortably Unaware. As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach to the world, we count on the support of listeners like you. Please make your donation today. Go to www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. What if you could experience vibrant health? Help heal the planet and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. of spiritually conscious living start now for a time-tested method to live with purpose and release your infinite potential tune in to the yoga hour living the eternal way with yogacharya ellen grace o'brien every thursday morning at 10 a.m central 8 a.m pacific only on unity online radio the voice of an awakening world listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. 
everybody. Welcome back. It is now my pleasure to introduce to you somebody that you may have seen in the movies. Dr. Richard Oppenlander was uh, featured quite prominently in Cowspiracy. Wonderful, wonderful film. We're going to have the Cowspiracy folks on the show next month. Dr. Richard Oppenlander is a sustainability consultant, researcher, and author whose award-winning book, Comfortably Unaware, has been endorsed as a must-read by Ellen DeGeneres, Dr. Jane Goodall and Dr. Neil Barnard, among others. His newest book titled Food Choice and Sustainability, Why Buying Local, Eating Less Meat, and Taking Baby Steps Won't Work, has won numerous awards, including the 2014 International Book Award. Dr. Openlander serves as an advisor to world hunger projects in developing countries and with municipalities in the U.S. He started an organic-based, plant-based food production company, operates an animal rescue sanctuary with his wife, Jill, and is the founder and president of the nonprofit organization Inspire Awareness Now. The website Comfortably Unaware uh, will tell you more. Welcome, Dr. Openlander. Well, thank you so very much, Victoria. And before we begin, I want to just take up just a moment to thank you for all your work you're doing with Main Street Vegan and, and life in general. I think it's pretty inspiring. So thank oh. you. Well, bless you. And I just want to get back to you that I'm so happy that you're doing what you do in the Midwest, up there in Michigan, my dad's home state. I feel like kind of an honorary Michigander. Yeah, I just, we're all over and we just need to let people know wherever we are what's important and, and what we're doing. So I loved in your introduction that you hit all the bases. Well, I think you're best known about sustainability and about climate change, but you also are concerned about hunger in this country and around the world. You're concerned about animal issues. And I think that's really the sort of renaissance vegan that, that we all aspire to be. So what, what sparked your interest early on? Well, first of all, I want to point out that yeah, all of those things are obviously interconnected. I don't think you can, you know, you certainly can't separate uh, global warming from all the other aspects of what I call global depletion, which are, you know, a number of different um, aspects of environmental concerns. But my my, my first uh, sparking, I think, for the interest was primarily not necessarily in just vegan living, but mostly. Uh, I think, a category of healthy living. And um, I think if anybody aspires to be as healthy as possible and then also to start looking outside of what's in their own little microcosm or bubble and start living for the health of everybody else around them in the planet, I think then that leads you towards, uh, obviously, a, a, a vegan or purely plant-based um, uh, lifestyle. And so initially it was more about health and nutrition, which led me to... Uh, plant-based um, food foods, and then it was more about I, I was working in research and uh, saw about animal uh, some of the atrocities that were occurring there, and also led to what was occurring behind the scenes with our food production, and that led to uh, the environment. So the environment almost came in, you know, uh, maybe after some of the other ones. I think is the best way to to pose it, but they're all interconnected. Okay. And so you're a vegan first or an environmentalist first? How, how would you define yourself? <laughs> well, well, yeah. I mean, see, I think that question uh, 
begs the correct, you know, framing in the sense that, for an answer in the sense that I don't think you can separate out being an environmentalist from being a vegan, but, but, but there are, aren't there? In other words, you can't really fully compare, you know, be very concerned about the environment if you, if you don't somewhere along the way start looking at what are, where our food choices are going. And so, um, I think they both have to be connected, but I suppose with me, my initial interest was more from attempting to become as healthy as possible, and by doing so, I became a vegan. And uh, and and so, whether you were looking at my health or in the health of our planet, they both were intertwined. I think early on, very early well, on. While we're on health, you know, I keep calling you doctor, and, and you're a dentist. Just as an aside, and we'll get back to <laughs> the main topic, but how are vegans' teeth? Do we have good teeth, bad <laughs> well, teeth, or... Yeah, well, no, they're fantastic. Just like, well, you know, the, <laughs> they rank very, very high and the highest possible because the the oral cavity is uh, is the, the portal for I think the, all, all your health. I mean, that's where food is is coming from, and actually, your oral tissues, not just teeth, but the gum tissue themselves, uh, cannot be that healthy when the nutrients provided for them are not that healthy. So, typically, all my all my vegan patients are much healthier uh, systemically, but especially in the mouth than than the ones that uh, are are that don't eat fully plant based. So that's a very good question. Well, and that's also good to know since we're probably going to live so long. It would be good to have our our teeth along with us for for the long haul. Now, it's hard to be upbeat and talk about the environment. And I remember early, early on in, in my veganism, because I was vegetarian back in the 70s, I went vegan in the early 80s, and we always said that the environment was one of the reasons for doing this, but nobody had ever heard of climate change. So environmental problems seemed certainly nuisances and at sometimes serious issues, but not this devastating, oh my gosh, life as you know it could stop being what you know. So given that... Why do so few people come to animal-free eating with the environment as their primary motivation? Mm-hmm. Well, I think we need to separate that out a little bit, and that was a very good introduction for the, for the question uh, itself. I, I think that let's first of all talk about the fact that uh, the, the diet, what, what people consume in terms of diet or nutrition many times is so, or nearly all the time, are associated with very strong cultural basis or influences. And uh, therefore, even if, they, even if they had some type of connection to the environment or some type of understanding or awareness level, typically you'd have to break through a number of different veils to, to break down that cultural constraint that they have. And I think it's, it's typically... Uh, going to become a, a, it's going to switch. I think it's going to be a primary motivating factor because more and more people are going to realize that the term that everyone's using today, which is sustainability or sustainable, uh, needs to be needs to be needs to have food positioned correctly. And so, whether it's with the uh, corporate responsibility statements or with just everyday living that individuals have, when they're talking about uh, becoming more sustainable or essentially healthy, but but using that word. Uh, it, or whether it's with policymaking, um, the environment obviously is at the core and very, very soon, and it's happening on a more quickly basis now than never before, uh, food choice and specifically plant-based options are going to have to be centered um, correctly. And so I think part of your question is, is that stating why, why are there so few people that have come to um, 
understand this connection, and I think it's 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 culturally culturally based, but also much of our information, as you know, related to plant-based uh, nutrition, especially agricultural systems themselves, are suppressed. I mean, anything that is going to um, run in the wrong direction from where most of our economics and policies are going, which is with meat and dairy and fishing industries, well, it's going to be just that much more difficult to overcome as a hurdle. And so, but as time goes on, we're going to be running out of water and land. And it's not, I do want to point out that other comment you made about climate change or global warming. It's, that's just one component. I mean, I want to make sure this is very clear. That's just one component of, of what I call global depletion, which are the categories of unsustainability, which are also freshwater scarcity, which is a, you know, a significant factor. I mean, we can have all the climate change and global warming we want, which is really an exacerbation uh, concern, but we're actually going to be running out of uh, freshwater scarcity whether we have climate change or not. And then there's also deforestation with the rainforest, uh, and whether whether we're creating climate change or not. There's massive land use inefficiencies with overgrazing and animal agriculture, which is the most inefficient way we can produce food. And so even without climate change, we're not going to have enough land to support the 9.6 billion people that are expected to inhabit Earth just by the year 2050. There's declining health of our oceans, of course, which is the the lifeline of our of our of our planet. With fisheries collapse, uh, over a thousand species of fish are, are collapsing now. So, uh, whether we have climate change or not, that's still occurring. And of course, there's all the world hunger and food insecurity issues, with uh, nearly a billion people going hungry and dying each year from uh, from uh, over three million children die each year from uh, hunger. And there's of course the rapid uh, extinction of species, uh, between uh, you know up to between ten times more to forty times more than we've ever seen before, and the, the decline of human health. So once again, climate change is an exacerbation of all of those, uh, which will certainly certainly uh, uh, will become more of a human rights, social justice issue. Uh, but um, and as things uh, um, become worse over the next few years with climate change and global warming, uh, all of these will be affected, but all of them will be affected anyway. And, and the most overriding factor, the, what I would call more the interconnecting thread between all these is food choice, and therefore we have to have the most efficient, most healthy food system you know, for our planet as well as for us, uh, or it, it won't really matter um, because we won't be sustained, and that's the essence of the of the word sustainable, isn't it? That would seem to be. If you want to get in on this conversation, if you have a question for Dr. Oppenlander, you can call us at 888-558-6489. We're still doing the giveaway through 2014 of a membership in the American Vegan Society and a subscription to American Vegan Magazine. If you want to call us at 888-558-6489. Six four eight nine. If, of course, you're listening to the live show on Wednesday, October 29th at three-ish Eastern time in the United States. And, of course, we welcome you uh, whenever you're listening through the miracle of the podcasting process. So with climate change, if we leave out the kind of fringe element that doesn't believe in it, which is just the strangest phrase to me, because it's sort of like, okay, I don't believe in the Easter bunny. I you know, don't quite see belief in, in something scientific. But, but leaving that aside, why are so many of the people who are invested in making things better for the environment – 
so reluctant to look at animal agriculture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mentioned that very briefly just a few minutes ago, which is where I think that it's uh, number one. I think the most important. Uh, factor is just the awareness level. I just really believe that uh, out of all of the interviews that I've, I've conducted myself and all the research that I've done in many, many countries, including our own, I just think that there's a, a, a serious void in awareness um, amongst our leaders. Uh, those are policymakers, business leaders, NGOs, um, community leaders, academics, you know, just across um, the media, just whatever you can imagine. I really believe that there's just not the awareness level that we need. They just aren't, aren't there. Um, the secondly is, is that even if they are, even if some of them do uh, understand some of this, like such, such as some of the researchers that uh, have, are looking at this with our climate change researchers and some with Global Footprint Network and things like that that monitor our, our environment, um, I, think that, I think that whether it's with the public or these organizations and even some of the, some of the organizations that were featured in Conspiracy, I think that um, some of them know. Uh, again, some of them aren't aware, but some of them that do know um, simply don't want to come forward and change because their own cultural beliefs are so strong uh, that they, whether it's through their own uh, physicians or through their own uh, awareness levels from, uh, from education uh, or their own businesses now, uh, it just flies in the face of, uh, of what, they're, um, what they've been taught. And so, um, and, and after all, I mean, I often say, how can we expect our leaders to guide us toward health and restoration of our planet if they can't even do it for, for themselves? And lastly, there are a few that are, that are keenly aware uh, of, of the connection, and, but yet they're, they're just very reluctant to move forward or, or look at it more uh, in terms of how to change for, for positive change in the world. And that's because they're very concerned about their their public uh, opinion, uh, meaning uh, those in media, those in, those in politics, those business leaders that are aware uh, simply can't uh, move forward with any change because they're, they're essentially afraid of the, of the industries that control a great deal of economics and policy making. In, the, in our country and in the world, which are the, the meat, dairy, and, and fishing industries. And so they're very powerful, and uh, many, many leaders are simply afraid of moving forward. So what can those of us do who maybe we're vegan for the animals or we're plant-based for our health or whatever somebody wants to call it, maybe we're not big-time environmentalists. How do we talk? to our friends and colleagues who identify as environmentalists and get this message over to them without seeming like we're just trying to find some other way to get somebody to like animals more. Oh, no, that's, I mean, that's a fantastic question. But, but I, I think the, the answer lies in the fact that first and foremost is that everyone should, be, should empower themselves with more knowledge before they discuss this. I, re- I really do. I mean, you can feel something, but you, you and I both know that you can go into a conversation with the greatest intent and uh, to try to actually increase the health of whoever you're, you're discussing it with or increase their awareness levels or, or to just improve uh, life in general to a healthier, more peaceful, more just type of uh, lifestyle for whether it's the person you're talking with or their family or community or, or beyond. So the first step is to actually become more aware um, through reading, and uh, through, uh, through uh, interviews such as this and your work. And uh, then the next step, though, is to, which is really what you're, what you're asking, is, is that what, what functional, what functional uh, 
actions can can someone take place and i think then once you're once you're aware i think it's a matter of just uh in two directions one is subtly approaching those that you care about around you because if you care about them you want to help guide them to a more peaceful healthy lifestyle and whatever whatever uh whatever way you can get your foot in the door on that, I'm sure that, that you can find it. But in a larger sense, I think it's time, it's very time to start looking at, at timelines. And uh, in other words, I think that it's time to start making an attempt to inspire those that can create the timelines that, or to work within the timelines that are there that we need to address, such as, uh, you know, we're running out of, we're running out of all those things that I just mentioned. And, we're, and so uh, we need to address those that are in policymaking uh Positions. We need to address our our educators. We need to address uh, those uh, those that you vote for uh, each each every couple of years that are in in positions that can actually affect our our food bill in the United States. Or even those you can even write letters and talk to those in NGOs. It's a really large topic in terms of how right now we're managing or not managing or mismanaging the, our world hunger and uh, uh, our world health issue with developing countries. And I'm, I'm been fortunate enough to be a consultant for a few NGOs, and one of them is is, is struggling right now with an incredibly multi-dimensional uh, model based on plant-based agricultural systems to improve uh, the world hunger aspect in Mozambique, and they're having difficulty finding funds uh, because uh, all of the major funding institutions have livestock at their base just because of the, the factors I just mentioned. They're either unaware or they are afraid of the industries uh, or they just can't change themselves. And uh, so it's, it's a very, very complex situation. But I think that, one, if everyone could become more aware of themselves to empower themselves with the knowledge of why a, plant -based, a fully plant-based diet is, is, uh, is uh, much healthier and a much more peaceful way to, for the world to be moving, but also be looking at the timelines we're on. It's not something that we can – I want to impress this very strongly. It's not something that we can sit on. Uh, and, and I think that we're, we've got – the human health aspect pretty well covered with a number of, of uh, health practitioners uh, writing books and you know you know in terms of authoring or or in lectures and we also have I think the the animal welfare aspect uh, covered fairly well but in terms of the environment I mean it's time to because of the first two seem to be related to an individual's own uh, timeline. For instance, when somebody gets around to, care, to understanding or caring about animal health or welfare uh, or ethics or when somebody gets around to caring about their own health. But from an environment standpoint, there, there will not be uh, a future for our species, let alone other species, if we don't start looking outside of ourselves and start looking at future generations and start looking at the effect of what we have on our plate and how, what, what effect that has on other other living things on our planet that we share this planet with that are, we're dependent on, whether we understand it or not, and that goes back to the awareness levels, um, and uh, and also uh, not only the hunger, hungry, suffering from hunger now, but also those that won't have any resources that will be depleted uh, in future generations so that we're that, that that happen on our watch. So I think that's the most important thing. If everybody can understand that and move those around them and not around them, even those in supervisory capacities, into the right direction, I think it'll be it'll we can get this movement uh, going in the right direction. But not only in the right direction, but in the at the, on the right timelines, which are so critical.
Right, and we will talk about those when we come back after the break. I'm speaking with Dr. Richard Openlander. The books are Comfortably Unaware and Food Choice and Sustainability. We'll be back after these messages with quite a bit more. Experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. of spiritually conscious living start now for a time-tested method to live with purpose and release your infinite potential tune in to the yoga hour living the eternal way with yogacharya ellen grace o'brien every thursday morning at 10 a.m central 8 a.m pacific only on unity online radio the voice of an awakening world Thank you for tuning in for Main Street Vegan. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan. Uh, Before we get back into our fascinating conversation with Dr. Richard Openlander, I do want to turn your attention to a couple of things that are happening in the world of Main Street Vegan. If you go to MainStreetVegan.net slash blog, you will find that this week's blog post is written by someone who's been a guest on the show, and that is the Reverend Dr. Russell Elevant, who's written about the Daniel Plan, which is a really popular book and lots of churches are doing doing this Daniel Plan thing, which sounds really vegan, but I guess it's not. So Dr. Elevin is brilliant and bright, and uh, he's written a wonderful piece on the Daniel Plan. also want to remind you that November 3rd is the debut issue of La Fashionista Compassionista. Subscribing right now is free. This is an online fashion magazine. You can subscribe at 
L-A-F-C-N-Y-C, like La Fashionista, Compassionista, N-Y-C, dot com. And yes, yes, I'm in the first issue and I'm so excited. And also over there at MainStreetVegan.net, if you go to the calendar, you'll see that I am doing something in New York City for World Vegan Day, November 1st. And then I will be at Penn State Great Valley in Malvern, Pennsylvania, speaking out there mid-month. And then in El Paso, Texas for the Thanksgiving celebration of the El Paso Vegetarian Society. We'd love to see you or anybody that you know in those parts and we have a caller a caller from chicago hey how are you fine how are you victoria i'm terrific and your name is vladina vuchkovich Ooh, what a beautiful name well thank you so much for calling the show what's your question for dr oppenlander my question for dr oppenlander is he recommended um contacting our elected officials and our educators. But I was wondering if he can recommend a group uh, that's both environmental and vegan um, that understands that it's one and the same issue and that we can um, rally behind and support and or do some grassroots work because it seems like nothing is going to change until large organization until people start really... Um, being aware of the of um, of the criticalness of of the of of global warming and um, or our water our waters are I, I mean the last guest that you had it said that in 2045 all the oceans are going to be dead I mean I, I don't know I was just wondering what else he recommends and what groups we can support Doctor. Yes. Well, first of all, uh, hi, and thank you for the question. Hey. It, it shows very clearly that you're thinking through this, and I like that in terms of how can we, we well, can affect change. And I think, I think the, the, the best way to answer that is, is that there isn't really one uh, uh, powerful group that is uh, is very clearly on board with what what's needed uh, to make this connection and to move it forward. I can tell you this, though, there are a couple pockets of groups, and I guess I divide that out a little bit in terms of how to how to help you with it. Uh, and I'll, I can answer more if you could uh, after we're through with this. If you could just go to my uh, my website, Inspire Awareness Now, uh, or Comfortably Unaware website, and write to me directly, and I can help you and detail this in a little bit further. But but to help you right now, I can tell you that. Um, my group, called, which is called Inspire Awareness Now, is trying to make those connections that you're talking about uh, and trying to increase the awareness levels of those that are in very uh, influential positions, whether it's through uh, policymaking or funding or academics, education. And we're trying to make those connections, and that's, that's one, of the, one of the highlights of what I'm doing uh, this year and next year is actually traveling to a number of different universities to make this happen on campuses, but also with um, nonprofit groups, NGOs, and business leaders, and policymakers. So we're trying to do that right now with mine, trying to bridge that, uh, that large gap. But there isn't one, in, one uh, particular group that's, that's actually doing that. In fact, all of the groups, I can tell you this much, which will help, too, that if you're, if you're um, attempting to, to, uh, to move forward with any sustainability efforts and making that right connection, the the, the, the groups that are at the top of influence right now, uh, say, for instance, just with our oceans, all of them have 
have the word sustainable used in their in their efforts, but they're actually moving the loss of more fish along, and that's what Cowspiracy tried to try to um, depict in terms of, for instance, Oceana. And so, one thing you can do is write to Oceana and actually make that connection for them, and but then also uh, support. Uh, any other group that comes along, which there aren't right now, um, for trying to advocate a purely plant-based diet, which would which would improve the health of our oceans. And that's what I'm trying to, to point out is that there's a large gap right now. We're trying to bridge that gap with our own group. For instance, there's a nonprofit group, an NGO called the, the Purpose Group International that's working with uh, world hunger uh, projects in India and uh, Mozambique, and, and that's a very nice group to, to get uh, linked to in terms of how to, how to drive people to, to support them. But basically okay. it's increasing awareness levels for your policymakers, and I hope that helps a little bit. On one hand, it's negative, and on the other hand, it's trying to give you some idea that we can bridge this gap. Thank you very much. That was helpful. Um, it's a place to start anyway because it it is. Is, we have much time at all. Thanks so much for Thanks your so call. Much. And okay. <laughs> thank oh. you. And thank you. Wh- what she said just reminded me of a question that I'm almost afraid to ask, but how much time do we have? In, in your opinion, mm-hmm. how critical is this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, in, in a broad answer, we, we, we really are running out of time, in fact, uh, we're we're losing species as we speak right now in this interview, and we're also losing land and water, and climate change is becoming irreversible. So we're actually uh, we're, we're at a loss right now. Um, in terms of um, in terms of uh, I guess a bit of bit, bit of a broad picture down the road. Um, for instance, the, the window of of change, uh, the window that we need to address climate change is 2017, and so it's quickly coming upon us. Um, the window for freshwater scarcity is over the next 15 years, uh, and certainly we all we have to we have to um, create the uh, the change that's needed. We have to create those 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 variables that we need to put into place right now in order to in order to bring this back around. But many have, have talked about and pro- projected or predicted that we'll even be running out of topsoil in the next 60 or 70 years, and regardless, again, of what climate change brings to, um, to the table. Uh, so I guess on one hand I'm saying that the windows are closing, and on the other hand, uh, and so those are our timelines. And, as, and what she said, I think she mentioned something about the year 2025 for the, for the oceans uh, being um, completely uh, void of life, and I don't know if that was the year. It was year 45. Gave, 45, yeah. It's actually, it, it is. It's actually 2048, and it, there are a number of studies that were they were presented by that. She's very close then, and it's basically the, the fact that uh, in combination with climate change, but mostly from our unsustainable fishing practices. So again, again, it's climate change is only going to worsen this, but most of those effects are strictly from uh, depletion of our oceans from fishing, uh, commercial fishing. And, well, I, and Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say I loved the phrase that you said almost parenthetically in Cowspiracy when you were said, you know, overfishing. But, of course, now any fishing is overfishing and then went on, and that's just so powerful for people to get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think that anybody really understands that these – and that's, that's the problem that we have today is that we're hearing all the information we're gathering or that's coming our way is, is filtered. It's kind of filtered with a lens that 
is in the best interest of whoever is giving that information. And so when you're talking about uh, fish, there are a number of guiding lights, if you could call them that, with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch and also uh, the Marine Stewardship Council that, that are governing how what our thoughts are or what our concepts are of fishing. And so they're, they're taking a habit that's unsustainable, which is any type of commercial fishing, and they're trying to make it sustainable because, the, uh, because of the economics of the industry itself. And so that's a very dangerous combination, isn't it? And so just as you said, I mean, overfishing really could be applied back in the mid-1800s. Now it is, what you said is really true. It's, it's, it's about commercial fishing. There, there really is, is no commercial fishing that can take into consideration all the cascading effects that we have on all of the interconnected ecosystems, which are infinite in our oceans. Hmm. Yeah, and this is so interesting to me out here in the world where I speak to a lot of people who are interested in health and so many people, oh, I, I mean, I'm a vegetarian. Of course, I eat salmon, you know, four times a week because I need that. And it's uh, it's a harder sell than the beef and well, the pork and the cheddar. Well, it is, Victoria, because, I mean, you're, you're going against all these, you know, you're basically battling all of these other uh, all of these other uh, influences. For instance, the USDA just a couple of years ago came out with pro- made a large proclamation that Americans should be eating more fish, and, um, doubling actually doubling their intake from uh, whatever the 16 to 20 pounds per year they're doing right now. And but they didn't mention anything at all about the ultimate effect on our oceans or the the negative health uh, human health aspects of fish, and uh, or the, dec- the the overall declining health of our oceans. Uh, let alone all the species of fish that that we're depleting individually. So, you know, that's that's one of the things we're battling, isn't it? When we have, you know, we're inundated with all these different um, influences, including food 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 movements. I mean, all you know, I I, I heard, I, I listened a little bit to you. I didn't catch much of it, but some of the your first guest was talking about family food and and uh, you know, farm to table, and those are all wonderful food movements. Um, as as a, a generality, in fact, this year 2014 is um, considered the year of the family for, or named the the stated as the year of the family farmer, and that's all all a good thing. Supporting local food, which is what I do uh, too, but um, you know, all those movements really are only can only go so far, and will not achieve sustainability or therefore health or peace in our world if they include uh, any type of animal agriculture. And that's one of the defining factors that we have to really understand. A a small family farmer that's local to you will not be producing healthy food if they include animal products. And that's because of the human health aspects, but but mostly it's because of the relative sustainability issues with uh, using animal agriculture. It's you know it's a fraction as efficient as uh, as producing plant-based foods. And so you're, you're, they're, whether they're family farmer and local and small or not, if they're using any type of animal agriculture, they're, they're still contributing to global depletion. So I have a question for you, also based on something that you said in Cowspiracy, and this one is a little bit controversial. This is as close as I get to being a shock jock. Now, if somebody asked you about Meatless Mondays, and you said, well, if you do Meatless Mondays, that means you're only destroying the planet six days a week. And yet, I speak to so many people who feel that the idea of eating no animal products ever would be like asking them to change their 
ethnicity and, and their race and their religion and their eye color. So how do we communicate with people in a way that is strong enough to work without scaring them away? Yeah, well, isn't that a good point? But, you know, what you're talking about really is, and um, I know that so many proponents, there are so many proponents of, of, uh, of really what you're talking about is eating less. It's, and it's what I call the eating less meat uh, advocate, advocation. Well, I think it's the letting them get to vegan over a period of time that's longer than between mm-hmm. now and tomorrow. <laughs> well, well, that's right, and that's what I mentioned earlier, that, uh, you know, we're all on our own time. Uh, lines it seems like, and so if 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 we're if we seem to be accepting that uh, the population as a whole is moving towards plant based diet um, when they get around to it, it's too late um, because we're actually losing lives and we're contributing to greenhouse gas emissions and we're contributing to world hunger uh, and we're slaughtering uh, lives uh, every single day. Um, so. So, yes, and that's why I made that comment is because, sure, you don't want to scare somebody away, but I think then again, that's, that's the, in fact, I think that, uh, Dr. Ornish made a, uh, had, um, uh, written a very nice article, uh, in one of his blogs about, you know, that love, you know, showing love and, uh, compassion is the right way to, uh, to, to, uh, drive somebody or to guide somebody towards, uh, a plant-based diet versus scaring them. And I, I agree with that in, in one sense, but, you know, let's start by saying that if that if um, some if a, if a little girl is out in the road, or let's do it this way: if somebody's driving a car off a cliff, okay, and they're right at the edge of the cliff, there has to be a point in time if they don't really have the awareness level of what's on the other side of the cliff. There has to be an awareness level. You take the wheel and you turn it for them, and you may have to shock them to do that. And uh, the last thing you want to do is to let all the public or the general public as a whole uh, drive ourselves. Uh, off off of a cliff of sustainability just because we're allowing everybody to, to, to move at their own pace. So I think it starts with awareness. I do. And I also want to point out, though, that, um, that I think, you know, when, you, when you're looking at this from a, from a less standpoint, let's just do less of it and get around to uh, a complete, uh, complete uh, plant-based diet when, when we feel comfortable doing it. Well, you know, I've, I've always said this, and this is very important to understand, that just in, in just reducing something just a little bit still allows the slaughtering to take place, and it still allows the inefficiencies of land use to take place. It still allows the uh, tons and tons of greenhouse gases, both in carbon dioxide and methane, to be produced. And every in every one hour that goes by, there'll be 354 children that'll starve to death in the world. So if you're if you're using if you're taking a little less meat uh, or or uh, dairy or or fish in general, you're still contributing to, to all of these factors. So those numbers can be zero. All the depletion numbers can be zero uh, if we if we just ascribe to a plant based diet. So I think it's a it's a problem on one hand. In terms of feeling as if you you may be uh, scaring someone, but I think that if you find a tactful way to point out the you know the uh, uh, the realities of our timelines and start you know to guide someone uh, compassionately and in a loving way, as Dr. Ronish would appreciate, towards understanding timelines and that we don't have we don't have. Uh, the the time for everyone to just move in this direction uh, on their own, and it's a, and it's a and it's a and it's a global comprehensive effort. I mean, we all have to move 
this ship together, this ship of, of peace and, and, and health and sustainability together because um, that's the only way we as a species can achieve sustainability. I mean, we can't do it on our own. Well, amen to that. I, I have to say what, what you said about this and the timeline thing reminded me, and, and I'm going to misquote this a little bit, but in a, in a wonderful book that's probably out of print called The Answer to Addiction, that author was talking about honesty, and he said something about just don't lie. Don't lie to your husband or your wife or the IRS. Don't lie to get out of a jam or to make yourself look better. Just don't lie. If you fail, which you will, get up. But don't fail any more often than you have to. And I think if we substituted eating plant foods for lying, that would make so much sense. Okay, you may fall off sometimes. Just don't fail any more often than you have to because a whole lot is at stake. And thank you so much. It's a very good point. I mean, that's that's an excellent point. I think the 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 what I said at the end of that comment in Cowspiracy or in my lectures is that you know why why would you want to rest on the laurels of what you're doing right one seventh of the time? Uh-huh. Um, if, uh-huh. if you're ascribe you know if you're ascribing to a meatless Monday. Wonderful. Well, I can't believe our time is up, but it is. The books are Food Choice and Sustainability, Why Buying Local, Eating Less Meat, and Taking Baby Steps Won't Work, and Comfortably Unaware, What We Choose to Eat is Killing Us and Our Planet. The website is inspireawarenessnow.org. Please tune into our show next week when our guests are Russell Simmons. Yahoo! That's pretty cool, isn't it? And Russell Simmons guru, his yoga teacher, Sharon Gannon. So be with us then, and um, let's get out there and eat our veggies. God bless you, everyone. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. Spirit of Recovery is the place where spirituality and recovery meet, where we support your spiritual growth. Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D., interviews down-to-earth guests who share with you how they keep going and growing in recovery. Spirit of Recovery is the place to get practical tips and join in lively discussions on topics that matter to recovering people. This program welcomes everyone who wants to know more about recovery. Join Anna and her guests live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central Time on Spirit of Recovery, where we talk about what keeps you growing. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Inspiration only takes a moment. We invite you to focus your attention inward with these words from Elizabeth Searle Lamb. This is a new day. Lead your conscious mind to that still haven of your soul where your indwelling Christ opens wide the doorway of your heart. At once, mind, soul, and body, you are flooded with the light and love of God. 
you are lifted high above this earthly plane and filled with the radiance of spirit. Send this love and light on to those whom you hold dear so that it may uplift, heal, and comfort them. As you send this radiance on, you are filled with a new sense of God's power, and you release this power to the whole world to uplift, guide, and bless all people. A day's tasks await you, but God is with you, and with God's help, all shall be done perfectly. This meditative moment is brought to you by Unity. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, don't take your dreams lying down.